Well, I'm back on my bullshit. Oh, no. Some some, some might say I never got off of it. Okay, let me guess. Uh, you need... Both of your monitors died, and you're nope. using the voice interface for the Windows now to do this, but you can't decide which monitors to buy. No, I mean... I did famously once play Mortal Kombat 3 with a broken monitor, but wait, how did you do that? Sounds. You just played with sound? We had uh, we had a, an MK3 machine in the GameSpot office that the monitor died on repeated. Like we tried to get it fixed it, whatever. It wouldn't stick. At some point, Jeff and I just started playing MK3 with no screen. Who won? Mostly him. Okay. In, in my defense, <laughs> in my defense, I never liked MK3. I was, I was all in on MK2. You're and a purist. I, I consider three to be a uh, massive downgrade. <laughs> Is it because of striker? Um, no, it was the dial of combo stuff. I oh, just okay. hated the, I hated the getting stuck in a like lengthy combo that you couldn't break out of type. Anyway, perfectly reasonable. Okay. He was able to do a fatality or two. Wow. Which, okay. Which but, was, but, but, pretty much the only fatalities you could pull off were the ones that were screen length away. Okay. I was going to say, cause like, how do you know? How, cause you have to be like the right number of yeah. pixels away. Yes. The, the positioning is pretty specific on those, but so yeah, pretty, pretty much all you could do if you did to like two jumps away from where you thought the opponent was, it should put you a full screen length. So you could, and, and could you see anything at all? Or was it nope. just like, no, oh, wow, just black, black pit, nothing. This is Literally amazing. Nothing. It was an interesting exercise. Anyway, uh, this particular bullshit is my quest for a PC speaker. Like a like an old school, like a, beep, a piezoelectric one? So no. Uh, every PC I ever had had a cone speaker in it. Oh, you want a paper one? Yeah, like the... the so it's weird. Like I went on YouTube and I found a, a, a dude who is messing with 86 box and like that thing synthesizes the, the PC, the, you know, the... Yeah, it, it's not FM synth. It's like what if it's square wave? It's a square. It's a, like a square of piezo. Usually is what it was. What the right. sound like, sound it would make? Yeah, whatever came out of the speaker header on the motherboard. Yeah, I had one of those in my wing. It's right. So so like I, I interestingly found a video of a dude who thought it sounded too good coming out of eighty six box because his PC, his family PC in the nineties, did have one of the piezo electric ones. Uh huh. So he actually wanted it to sound worse because this is all about nostalgia. Let's be honest here, like. <sighs> Yeah, you, like you want that bad sound from, I, I feel like Doom had, Doom and Wolfenstein would both play sound out of your PC speaker. Yeah, actually this led me on a weird rabbit hole of like, you could find like software, um, digital audio playback drivers from that period that could play sound through the PC speaker purely oh. on the CPU. There's there's YouTube videos of that stuff out there. There's a lot of wilds. Anyway, I never had one of the piezoelectric ones. Those are very tinny and thin sounding. I have, I was, we always had cone speakers in our cases. Yeah. Um, so you can't like if you go to Amazon or even Google and type like PC case speaker. They're kind of not around anymore. Hmm. Like nobody makes one. That's just like a little tiny speaker with a speaker header on it. The you can the piezoelectric ones are for days. You can pay five bucks and get 10 of them on Amazon. Yeah, it seems right. But but the bigger cone type. Well, it was like a, it was like a one and a half inch cone. Probably it wasn't very big. So that's the thing is that I've been searching with language like PC case speaker all this time. Yeah. Um, I was watching a video last night where a guy pulled the speaker out of a literal IBM XT and it's just a little eight ohm, like half watt speaker. Yeah. Turns out if you go to Amazon and type in eight ohm speaker, there are a bazillion. Yes. There's more choices you can possibly parse. Ooh. So now my question is, can I, can I just buy an eight ohm speaker and like wire the terminals to the header on the motherboard? Is there any reason that won't work? Probably it's fine. What is the, Huh? 
I guess theoretically you could blow out the circuit on the motherboard, but you're about to replace that motherboard. So who cares? Let it rip. Oh, well, that motherboard doesn't work. Oh, like that. I would not be. I would have to test it on a good motherboard to know. And yes, I saw some people talking like maybe current could be an issue. You could blow something out if you don't pair things up right. Like, do I need an extra resistor in there? I know so little about electricity. Yeah, no, it's scary. I don't I don't I just know I know how to use computers. I don't know anything about electricity, but I, I need to hear that beep. I need I need beep on boot. I, I realized um, I realized that Windows 11 has a startup sound again. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. It makes it plays a little chime. It's just like. Dun, dun, dun. Is it Brian Eno level quality or yeah, it's OK? It's not Brian Eno level quality. But the Brian Eno one, frankly, is too long. If we're I being, think I, it goes for a long time. I like how kind of indulgent it is. It's funny, though, because there are interviews out there of him talking about how short it was, like how hard it was to compose sounds that fit in like it can't be more than it's three like seconds, seven seconds, seconds or something, isn't it? Yeah. Like he's talked about how like hard and weird that exercise was. Yeah. This one's just like a it's like a slightly long chime. Mm. It's not bad. I like a good startup sound. I miss them. Event sounds. I, I, we've talked about it for, for ages. We should do an event sounds episode. Did you? Okay. This is completely off topic and we're, we're breaking the format here a little bit, but did you ever replace windows sounds with like a sound pack? Mm. I, I did uh, Simpsons sounds. Mm. Oh, actually. Yes. No, I totally had the star Wars quotes for startup and shutdown. Yeah. I had star Wars stuff for a while. Um, but the Simpsons one, when I went through and watched the Simpsons with my daughter, it's funny because like I would hear a quote that was associated that I associated with like error messages in windows and you, you, it just, it just kind of, it, it made it, it, it's, it's like the, it's like the computer equivalent of a smell memory where uh-huh. you smell yes. some specific smell and you're like, Oh God, and yes. I was like, Oh, this was the time that I messed up the modem. This is, this uh-huh. is the modem bad sound. I don't, Oh, I don't like this at all. Yep. Nope. Every, you're absolutely right. Every time that I hear Yoda say, help you, I can. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I know that it's time to compute. Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad, and I am very self-indulgently going to actually say to anybody listening to this who understands, let me know. <laughs> let me know about this 8-ohm speaker thing. I need to crowdsource my bad DIY project idea. Yeah, it should be fine. Like My guess is that there's not a whole lot you can mess up there. Um, if, if, if the old speakers were 8-ohm speakers, I'm sure that it's probably okay. Yeah, I, I th- that's probably like I assume I can just wire a couple of jumper cables to the terminals on the speaker and just plug it into the headers properly and should be good. If you take an old um, if you have like an old header from a motherboard cable, you can also buy those those um, they're like four pin Molex connectors. They're mini Molex. Or I can't remember what the name of the connector is, but it's 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 a standard connector type. And you can buy a bag of those for probably like 50 of them for like a dollar. Oh, I have. Trust me. Yeah. So then, so then you need to buy the pins, the cables, and they just snap in. So you yep. so you solder the the cable onto the speaker thing. Yeah. Yeah. It should be easy. You get two. I'd like. I, I'm curious now. Okay. All right. Um. How how are you? Uh, I'm alive. Doing? 
you're here. You sound more normal. Yeah, I'm a little deeper than normal, I think, still. Uh, the long-term repercussions seem minor so far. That's good. But uh, I took the kiddo. We took advantage of our brief immunity window and went to see a movie yesterday in a theater, which was exciting. Huh. Masks on. Okay. Um, should, should I ask what movie? We went to see The Minions, The Rise of Gru. It was her, oh. her request. Did you it's dress a classic. up? Did, I did not. I did not. Uh, I did not. What, what do they call it? Minion formally or whatever. I didn't wear a suit I, to the minions. Yeah. Apparently it's been banned a lot of places. Oh, wow. So oh. It's probably. It was 118 degrees out here yesterday. And we oh. were, there were four other people in a 200 seat theater with us. So, wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty. That's a hell, wait, how long is the immunity window now? Is it like, like two to four days? weeks is what we're assuming. Wow. wow. Yeah. We're, 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 we're a little tighter than normal, I think, though. Huh. Um. The, uh, but yeah, the, 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 uh, the big thing though was like, we got to our seats and I realized we'd forgotten straws. So I had to go back and get straws. And by the time I climbed back up, she was like, Hey dad, do you have any napkins? I was like, Oh crap. (laughs) So I walked back down the stairs and by the time I got back up the stairs, I was like, I need a nap. I am so freaking tired. Wow. And it was like 12 stairs. So my endurance is not what it once was, is what I will say. Did you fall asleep? I did not fall asleep during the movie. Um, but, but we did manage to spend, uh, we managed to not get Gina sick. So she masked up in the house the whole time. That's kind of amazing. Washed her hands and like was super, uh, super careful. Um, but yeah, she did a PCR the other day and, and she's clean. Um, and, uh, I think I tested negative after nine days and the kiddo did after eight or seven um, but it was, it was, uh, it wasn't great. I would, I would advise people to not get it, the, the Rona it's, it sucks. Not a recreational activity. No, do like get vaccinated and stuff too. Cause it's like when the doctor was like, Hey, this is minor. I called the doctor. The doctor was like, Hey, do you want Paxlovid? And I was like, ah, tell me about Paxlovid. And she was like, look, here's the side effects. And she ran down the list of side effects and she's like, okay, so there's a, there's some minor stuff. Like you'll have a bitter taste in your mouth the entire time you take it. Huh. I was like, that doesn't sound that minor. And she's like, oh, compared to the other stuff, it's minor. And she's like, kidney failure is a potential thing. I was like, oh, no, I'm probably good. If this is, Mm. I'll I'll be okay. So, Oh, they have to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. That's just what the man wants you to think. So, um, but yeah, I I feel uh, generally speaking much better, a little congested, a little coffeeier than normal. uh, And I'm still kind of taking it easy. So, yeah. I'm glad, glad to hear you're on the mend and yes, don't push yourself too hard. There's like, there's like a bunch of, uh, messaging coming out lately from the medical community, basically saying like, Hey, please continue to take this seriously. Not from the standpoint of like trying to avoid getting infected, but more like once you get it, like, don't just like work through it. Well, don't, don't act like it's just a cold. Like the, the harder you push yourself while you're in the active infection, the longer it's going to take you to get better because this really takes it out of you. Well, and my understanding is also there's a, there's a fair amount of, um, uh, data that indicates that, that seems to indicate that the longer it takes you to recover and the more you push hard during the recovery, the more likely you are to suffer from long COVID symptoms. So like the doctor was like, okay, so here's the deal. You have to exercise. You have to do enough activity that like you get your lungs going, but not so much that you are like straining yourself. So I was like, what does that mean? She's like, well, normally I tell you to go take a walk around the block, but since you're someplace it's 120 degrees outside, that's a bad idea. I was like, what if I go out and like, like move my arms and legs in the pool for 15 minutes? She's like, that's perfect. Ooh, sounds pretty good. 
Yeah. So I did a lot of floating in the, like, it turns out if you're going to have a, a fever and chills and stuff, being someplace where it's 115 degrees outside during the day and you can just go outside and immediately be warm. Pretty good. That sounds all right. Yeah. Get, get, hey, get sick in the desert if you can. Yeah. Hey, happy birthday, by the way, Brad. <laughs> Thank I missed, you. I missed you earlier this week. I'm sorry. Thank you for that. Yeah. While you were convalescing, I had a birthday, which yeah. I guess per our now annual tradition means we're going to do a year in review. Yeah. Congratulations on another revolution. Oh, boy. Oh, it's just I'm 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 deep into the like, now I'm sitting here pondering like I'm still in my early 40s, right? Like 43 is like late that's still early. early 40s. Yeah, that's like that's like late early 40s, not you, early mid 40s, border, right? borderline early mid. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to keep calling it. Look, I'm I'm late mid now. So oh, no. I've got oh, one no. year until I'm in late. <laughs> oh, no. Um, what what um how much longer is the ponytail this year than last year is the real oh, question. It's pretty, it's pretty long. Really? Well, you, I never you, you got like four inches on it this year. Wow. That is it's, a tight. I've, I have developed a fairly tight bun. It's point. a tight knot. Yeah. Like you um, could put a hat on that thing. You wouldn't even know it's there. It's true. It's true. Uh, if I, if I let it down, it is like mid chest now. Wow. Like I'm kind of tempted to just keep going and see what happens. I mean, look, it's not like you leave the house ever. It's probably fine. Very true. Very true. Anyway, I just copied you. Yeah. Uh, from, from a couple months ago when we did, uh, after your last birthday, you chose the year you graduated from high school. 1993, a fine year. Yes. So I went and did the same, which is 1997. Well, we talked about it because like 97 is an interesting year. 98 is an interesting year. 99 is an interesting year. They're all kind of like a lot. Of, it was active. 96. Hey, it turns out every year a lot of, you know what? Things happen. Stuff is happening. Yeah. All the time, it turns out. Uh, uh, but but yes, we, we settled on 97. Yeah. Ni- 97 is the year before I graduated from college. I don't remember a lot of 97 because I was working like working. I was putting networks in businesses at night and, okay. um, and then going to school kind of during the day, but mostly just playing a lot of Quake World. Installing, you, I guess. installing networks overnight is not the kind of senior itis partying that I was expecting to hear. But I, I well, I ended up I didn't I didn't pay like I finished college with no debt because I was able to charge people 40 bucks an hour to run uh, 10 base two for them because I bought wow. a crimper. Yeah. 40 bucks an hour in 1997. It's pretty good. Everybody wanted networks and they had no idea why, but I was like, I dude, I can put a network in for you. I'm good. I will make this happen. I was, I was charging 10 an hour for the like computer tutoring and stuff that I was doing around that time. What was I, what was I doing? Well, I mean, look, it was, it was, um, it was a weird thing that I kind of fell into because I was talking to somebody and they were like, Hey, do you know how to do this? I was like, yeah. And they were like, my boss wants to put a network in. I was like, I can absolutely, it was a friend of mine from school. My boss wants to put a network. in. I was like, well, I can come talk to him and show him how to do it. And then then like I helped him do it at a, at a much lower price. And then he was like, look, you should be charging more for this. (laughs) And also I can introduce you to a bunch of people who want the same thing done. So I ran a bunch of networks for people and uh, paid for school. That's pretty awesome. It was good. I, it was, I, fun. I, I was very lucky. It was the right time at the right place. Cause like two years later and it wouldn't have been possible. Okay. Shall yes. we get into it? Yes, let's do. <clears throat> These are kind of scattershot. These are sort of all over the place. It was a, it was an all over the place kind of, it was the Clinton years, man. Things yeah, were weird. Sure. Yeah. Tell me about it. Speaking of. Yes. That was the year that Dolly, the sheep was cloned in Scotland. Remember that? Yeah. 
Do you remember that? That was huge, right? Like, do, am I am I misremembering? Like, I, I feel like that was a kind of massive media event. Well, so okay, it was a massive media event, but also I was a junior in a biochemistry and molecular biology program, and the professors had really mixed vibes about it. Like, some of them were like, "This is really cool," and then some of them were of the opinion that this was just some really nice pipette work and nothing really to be celebrated. <laughs> Because all they did was uh, take, I think, I think it was that they they uh, micro pipetted a nucleus from a mammary cell into an embryo, into a fertilized embryo. So they pulled one nucleus out and then spat a new one in, and they were like, "Okay, let's see if any of these work." And then one of them worked. And I, I assume they, well, of course, they would have genetically verified that. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, it was identical. The sheep was identical. Look, after I mean, the fact. You and me, sheep all look the same, but to that's an fair. expert, they could tell. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I didn't realize reading about this uh, in research that this was not the first mammal ever cloned, period. The, the rest of them they did from um, embryonic from, uh, cells. Yeah, 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 yeah. so they, they had cloned embryos essentially previously, but the, the big deal here was that they had cloned an adult animal. Yeah. Um, and I didn't put it in here. I also noticed this was the same year that uh, Clinton signed a ban on federal funding for research on human cloning. I don't know if that was a response to this. Well, it was federal funding on human cloning and also stem cell research. Oh, was so, that all in the same bill? I don't know if it was the same bill, but like it was. Look, back then, uh, things have moved a little bit. It was a weird time for for politics and, and the fundamentalist right. And, and oh, compared to now, it was <laughs> the beginning totally of normal. the problems that we have now. Yes. Oh, you were, yes. Yeah. Newt Gingrich was elected speaker of the house in 1997. Mm, also. Okay. Yeah. Enough said. Yeah. Um, uh, it was bad news. The animals that got cloned had, had almost universally bad outcomes. You, yeah. You're not wrong. Although reading about this, it was not as bad as I thought. Like in, in my memory, like this was like, oh, they technically pulled it off and the and the sheep did live, but it was not really a, like a viable animal. But like reading about it, like she did OK, not amazing. I mean, she had she had six lambs. Yeah. Over the course of her shortened life. Um, but uh, so I guess her. What, let's see. She's a, a Finn Dorset is the breed of sheep. Mm, yeah. Which normally lives 11 to 12 years. Yeah. Uh, she at the age of four developed arthritis and started having walking problems. And then she was actually euthanized at six and a half due to a progressive lung disease mm. and, and worse arthritis. So yeah, she, yeah, you're right. You're right. She was not doing great. Not a great outcome. No. I mean, it's, it's weird though. Like, I wonder if that's it's, cause like now I, my understanding is you can, if you have a lot of money, you can pay someone to clone like a dead pet. Yes. If you want. True. And I wonder if the same, like I have to imagine you're going to have similar outcomes. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's the whole thing is really weird. I really should not go to Google and type pet cloning cloning, but I've already done so. Oh no. Um, mm. I think you mean back rub also. Oh, <laughs> yes. We'll get to that. Oh, let's see. Wow. Okay. Here's a here's a company called Viagen. Yeah, that's a good total cost company. Of, name? That's right. Uh, the total cost cost of dog cloning is $50,000. That's, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to just go to the animal rescue and get another puppy. Yeah. You might, you might think so. Like I, I love so. my dog, but I wouldn't want another, I'd just get another dog at this that's point. The, I think that's probably the thing to do. I'm yeah. not even, I'm not even down with purebreds. Like I'm, I'm always like go find a shelter mud. There's yeah. a lot of shelter muds that need homes. Um, what, uh, 
Uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, this is, so one of the things that happened with the cloning stuff is that we ended up having a lot of, um, it, it made it possible to, to, um, there's, there's good science that came out of this. We, we joke about Dolly, but, um, it's been yeah. beneficial yeah, in some way. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, there's, I see some stuff here about, uh, further stem cell research that came from it and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, continuing cell lines, stuff like that. Yes. Yes. Anyway, also a big media event. Yeah. Here's here's a name I have written down here. I, I, I do, I do really like, I want to shout out to my genetics professor who literally in that thing was like, somebody asked a question at the end of, at the end of the lecture one day when the news broke and he was like, okay, look this is the most bullshit bullshit you've ever heard. Right. And he's like, here's why they, they took a, a nucleus. They, somebody, somebody who did this is really good at pipetting without breaking cell membranes. And he's like, anybody in this room could do that. If you spent a few, few weeks practicing and, uh, and look here, they are on newsweek because people yeah, cared about newsweek back then. I could have cloned that sheep in my sleep. Yeah. yeah. There's, Seems like a fair amount of low key shade in the academic world. He was kind of an asshole for what okay. it's worth. Well, yeah. yeah, but also like there's just a lot of contentious disagreements about study results and so forth. Yes, that's also true. Uh, okay, here's a name I've written down. Okay, Win Nuke. Oh yes, do you remember Win Nuke? Uh, yeah, Nuke.exe. I remember at the end of Hackers, they run that, and it's yeah, the it. thing that brings you. You you, <laughs> you 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 uh hack the planet, bro. I wonder, wait a minute. I wonder if this was, was the nuke type of exploit named after that scene? Uh, I think it's the other way around. Oh, no. Hackers was 95, no, right? That, yeah, that's the thing. This, this, so when nuke was released in 97, oh, when nuke is the God, first might've been, yeah. And hackers was a couple of years before that. I think that's <laughs> entirely possible. Um, when nuke is the, is the first like wide scale internet vulnerability exploit type thing that I remember making the news and being a big deal. Well, cause it ran across TCP, right. Instead right. of like local networks, like most at that point, like the, the stuff, the stuff that was a problem was like uh, word macro viruses and worms and stuff like worms that ran over local networks rather than the broadly addressable internet. Right. And I like, I know, I know you had internet access mm -hmm. a good bit before me on account of going to college earlier and stuff, but like this, is like a matter of months after I even got on the internet period, like ever touched the internet for the first time. Oh, wow. I had ISDN so, in 97 by, by, probably by that it. point. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't, um, look, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it was twice as fast as a modem. Still not great. I look, Hey man, when <laughs> I was happy to get three kilobytes a second. Okay. <laughs> like it getting was symmetrical though. So that's nice. Uh, downloading a megabyte in what two and two, two and a half minutes instead of five <laughs> would have changed my life. Yeah, it was. Anyway. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if we want to get into the nitty gritty. Yes, they they exploited uh, a specific component of the TCP header mm -hmm. called an urgent pointer. Uh, apparently that flag is used. I'm quoting from Wikipedia used to indicate that some of the data in the TCP stream should be processed quickly by the recipient. The affected operating systems did not handle that field correctly. So that was and this caused a blue screen. To be clear, this was Windows 95. NT and the 3.1s would all blue screen from this. Yep, that would do it. We, we um we had a computer lab that was all Linux machines at this point in the in the CS department 
and the admin of that group, uh, after the lab closed, we would all go play three wave CTF in there. And, um, like the it, Linux version of quake. Uh, no, we probably booted to windows for that would be my guess. Okay. Okay. Um, but also people knew the IP addresses of those machines and you'd occasionally get a mysterious blue screen if you're doing <laughs> too well in the game. Weird. Oh. What a weird coincidence. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. Uh, God, what Linux was even out in 97? Slackware. 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 And that was about it. Um, Red Hat, probably Debian. God, I, guess. I guess I guess Red Hat was that early, right? Yeah, Red Hat, Red Hat yeah, and Slackware yes. were the two kind of early ones. Gentoo was probably out shortly thereafter, if not by then. You're right. The Debian was. And I would not be surprised if Gentoo. I assume Gentoo has been around since the Stone Ages. <laughs> you found it in a cave. Gentoo was like the one that the hardcore people yes. did, but I feel like the lab ran Slackware because that's what the guy who was the admin was a Slackware guy. Okay. That, that makes sense. Slackware was the one I had heard of in the nineties for, for what that's worth. And, and, and also like as much as Arch, I think has the reputation for being like the gray beard, gray beard distro these days. Like I get the sense that Gentoo is like an order of magnitude more. Well, nuts than that. Gentoo, I, I installed Gentoo a couple of times, and the problem with Gentoo was you had to compile everything. That, that's exactly it. Like that's it's the one that makes you compile everything. Yeah, which like back back then you'd get like a probably a pretty decent speed increase on the hardware that you were running. Now it's just a thing that a crazy person would do because right. the power, like you 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 don't. It doesn't matter. That's the the, that, the yeah yeah. So that's fast. that's the that's the stereotype I've read about is like people just endlessly <laughs> trying to optimize the compile flags for their kernel when they built again to get like 0.001% more speed. Yeah. But like if you're running a lab with 30 computers in it, then, then students are running it like Slackware or Red Hat or something like that is the way to go. This is when yeah. Slack, when Red Hat was still not a like enterprise product at that point, it was just, huh. a, it was just a Linux distro would be my guess. Interesting. Cause they didn't go um, public until like 99 or 2000, I think. So the username of the person who published the C code for this exploit was underscore ECI. What is ECI short for? How about how, how much do you want to bet that was just their initials? Do you think that's? Oh, er- that Eric, Chris. <laughs> Don't know. Wow. Maybe. Um, Did they so find that, out who wrote it? Not that I've seen. Huh. Uh, you know, Microsoft eventually issued patches some, yeah, yeah. some some weeks or months later, but because the source code was out there, like a zillion little tools were made by all kinds of people with names such as Fed Up, Kill Me, Liquid Nuke, Muerte, uh, Nuke Attack. So let's see. Well, uh, I mean, it's important to remember at this point, Microsoft was the enemy of freedom on the Internet. Right? Oh, yeah, of course. Like, this was this like, was firmly in the micro dollar sign off yeah. era. It may have even been a little bit before that. This is just when, right. like they were they were just the evil empire, you know, the destroying everything. They'd killed OS two warp. They were coming after uh, they were coming after your computers. God, Jean Baptiste on the VLC false pod that we put up recently talking about there still being a version of VLC maintained for OS two has made me really want to go install OS two. Install OS two. It's it's you know that's the that, that's your that's your out for your I've, computer problems. The second time I've mentioned eighty six box on this episode. I've been eyeballing that thing for a while and kind of putting it off until I build a new desktop because it does need a fair amount of CPU grunt. But is it just a software emulator for an for like a five eighty six CPU? I don't know how much actual virtualization it's doing. I haven't really looked at what it's what's going on under the hood. If yeah. It's like actual VMs or what the deal is. It's it's like I, I conceptually you can think of it as a much more capable glorified DOS box. Oh, okay. 
But instead of like DOSBox, I think is just sort of an interpreter for like DOS system calls or whatever. This thing emulates everything from the BIOS up. And it's oh. like, I believe it's, ac- it might be actual class- classic BIOSes or maybe those are copyrighted and it uses a, like a substitute. But like, you can define everything about the system. You can tell it like what kind of hard drive geometry you want. Wow. Like you can say, hey, I want the platters of this hard drive to be like they were in a quantum fireball from 1998. Jesus. Like it's a super hardcore way to run old x86 PC stuff. Anyway, that sounds fun. A lot of the stuff from that time period is really hard to run uh, right. on modern machines. This, is the it, thing. it sounds kind of amazing. Oh. And, and that would be the natural place to do something like play with OS2 warp. Or OS2 3 pre-warp. Ooh, OS2 Which, warp was way before this though. Um, should we, uh, should we talk about Wi-Fi? Yeah. 802.11, just 802.11. Yeah. This was, was just the spec for the, for the like underlying layer. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was like nothing, nothing shipped. Like this was, this was, Hey, here's a way to do wireless networking as defined by the IEEE. And then uh, nothing happened until I think 1999 or early 2000 is when I first saw 8 to 11 uh, hardware in the wild. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before. I've talked about that like weird hole in my memory, that gray period where I think Wi-Fi was around, but I wasn't super aware of it. And then the next thing you knew, everything was wireless. Like I didn't get my I didn't get my first wireless router until 2008. Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, I was probably late on that. Well, so yeah, it was the thing that, the thing that kicked it off was when Intel started advertising laptop chipsets on TV with wire wireless. Right. Um, and, and like the Centrino stuff with 802.11b just being a feature of like, like going from, Hey, here's a thing you have to pay an extra hundred bucks for that nobody wants to a thing that you already have. And you just need to buy a router to make work suddenly became a, a good thing. Also, the other thing that pushed it over the edge is everybody suddenly started needing a router because there were a bunch of worms that spread over the internet that, uh, that, that oh, yes, if, you had no. a, if you had a win 95 <laughs> or win 2000 machine just on the raw internet, you'd have real problems. Yes. We have, we have talked about your past indiscretions. Look, I got a nasty letter from the ISP. I was like, there's nothing wrong with my computer. And I looked at my computer. I was like, oh God, there's a lot <laughs> wrong with my computer. This, this unpatched windows 2000 machine that is directly connected was, to the internet it was it was patched it just wasn't firewalled mistakes were made that was a look that was a naughty computer we all we all get an sdsl machine and think we have a sdsl connection we're like we have i have a t1 coming into my bedroom i should have a server and it turns out i should not have had a server uh i've always wondered what the separation is between the the letter designations on 802.11 like there is technically an A, although I think that's like some very early spec that's described as OFDM waveform here. Well, A, um, there were there were two. No, uh, A wasn't A the five point four gigahertz variant. Uh, yes, A does operate in the five gigahertz band. Yeah, it was. Um, the early Sonos stuff was based on A. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, um, okay, so A is not super consumer facing from the sound of. I mean, B obviously it was B G N. Everybody knows then A C. Well, no, A was available, but the spectrum oh, the spectrum wasn't as unified around the world. Okay. Um, you could buy eight to eleven A stuff. It didn't penetrate as well because it was higher frequency. Yeah. Um, but you had much better bandwidth uh, on the A hardware than you did on the B hardware. Interesting. Okay. Um, it turns out most people, like if you go back and use 802.11B now, the range is abysmal. Um, and there wasn't like most, there wasn't an easy way to do like access point hopping or anything like that even. So well, you get, unless you had a high end commercial setup, 
which really didn't exist because you, you know, like you'd go to, I, okay. It's hard to remember, but there were like big technology events. Like there were Apple events and CES keynotes and stuff like that, where the Wi-Fi immediately died the moment the event started because every, all the reporters would connect on their laptops to Wi-Fi and it would, it would just completely crash the network. Oh, I remember. Uh, and that didn't, that didn't get fixed until N really when, when we started having more spectrum available and, and smarter access, you know, heavier access points. Right. Um, the, the A, A was unusual, but available in the U S regularly. We reviewed a cards Interesting. and AB cards were not super uncommon. Um, often you would buy an AB, like often laptops would have AB, but they wouldn't wire antennas onto the A ports. So you wouldn't have anything like they just turn them off in the, in the BIOS. Um, also, yeah, on, on the point of the naming, like there are no intermediate standards. It's, it's not like there's B, C, D, E. Like it literally just goes from B to G and then from G to N. So I don't know what, I don't know what drives that naming. There, there's C, D, and E probably were things that either faltered and didn't get rat- ratified or, um, or are other aspects of the protocol, like security, security access or handshaking or something like that. Hmm. Negotiation. Yeah. Standards. I mean, at some point we should do a, a, Hey, how does the IEEE work episode? But I feel like that'll just be uh, a bunch of companies get together and talk to each other. And then everybody yells about the things that they want. And then it all gets jammed in. And then, then a handshake happens and, and, right. and a IEEE standard was born. Yes. Or in the USB case, they make the worst possible version of every decision. Look, it's USB 3.2 generation C now. Dude, I cannot. I, I don't, don't get me started. Now that I, I'm, I'm in I'm in the position of buying a new motherboard and looking at what, you know, what IO is on there as one does. Yeah. And realizing how god awful USB naming has gotten. Like what happened? You mean super speed USB 20 gigabits? Oh, sorry. USB 3.2 Gen 2x2 or USB 3.2? Which one are you looking for, Brad? I mean, I guess the upside is the board I'm looking at does have one of those 20 gigabit ports on it, which is cool. I didn't know that even existed. But like what? USB 4 Gen 2x2 or just USB 4? How how did we get to a 3.2 Gen 1 and 2? What are you people doing? They simplified the naming scheme. Of course they did. Yeah. That that's that's that was what so instead of having USB three and three point one and three point two, now we have USB three point one, three point two, and USB three point one gen two, and then USB three point two, and then USB gen three point two gen two by two, which is a double wide three point two gen two connection. It all makes perfect sense, Brad. Hey, did you know that September ninety seven was when Steve Jobs rejoined Apple? The triumph the prodigal son returns. Yes. Uh well known. I don't know how much we need to get into it. They Apple acquired. Actually, the thing I have been reading about a lot for whatever reason is the absolute boondoggle of Apple operating systems in the 90s. Oh, yeah, it was real I bad. Mean, granted, like everything at Apple in the 90s was a boondoggle. I mean, they were like, what was it? 90 <clears throat> days from bankruptcy or something What's the famous stat when yeah, Microsoft, like Microsoft invested money. a ton of money. Yeah, Microsoft put 150 million dollars in and com- and but more importantly committed to releasing Office on Mac so that yes. people continued buying Macs. That was yes. the, that was the thing that like the, they they were like IT purchasers were worried that Office was going to go away and then they'd buy a bunch of these expensive Macs and then there'd be no software to run on them and and they'd be hosed. Um and this was back when like format wars were a much bigger deal, right? Like if you if you needed to be in the office ecosystem, you needed to be in the office ecosystem, right? Like it's not like you know, like every word processor now pretty much can open every format. 
Well, it's still kind of the case though. Cause like if you do contract work and your lawyers send you word document files that are annotated and have all the, like the subheads and all that stuff and you open them in something else, it's going to jack up the subheads even yeah, today. That's fair. So that, that investment, was that literally the same announcement? Like, was that all one? It was giant- a couple weeks later, as I recall, or maybe before okay. it was, it was, um, it was an important, like it, it was a, it was micro, it was Bill Gates's way of saving Apple of doing right. what he could to save Apple. And, and, but also, well, I started to say in the shittiest way possible, but I think my memory is entirely colored by the way this is portrayed in Pirates of Silicon Valley, yeah. which is where like, which is like Noah Wiley as Steve Jobs, like giving some presentation and like, it's a real, <laughs> it's like a real dart, like the Empire Strikes Back, the doors opening and Darth Vader is there moment of what, just like the giant looming face of Bill Gates appears on a screen. Well, that's how it happened at Macworld, and, and everybody loses their minds in a bad way. Yeah, that's that. I think it was a Macworld is, that's where that happened, right? Is, is that fairly historically accurate? We um, really, we really need to watch that movie at some point. My understanding is that Bill Gates's face appeared giant on the screen at Macworld behind Steve Jobs, and was like, "Hey, Office, we're going to keep making Office, and here's 150 million dollars strategic investment in Apple." I'm like, I it, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like I remember like the Macintosh community just treated this like the end of the world, right? Um, I. I it's difficult to say because there's like, as always, well, okay. So there was a game you used to play when you went to Macworld, which is, is this person on the phone with somebody like with a headset in, or are they talking to themselves? Because the community was pretty evenly divided between like, like old school homebrew, homebrew computer aficionados and like, like the kind of people who were into computers in the eighties before they were really a business thing for most people. And then like, at, by that point, there was a burgeoning new class of of people who were like putting Macs in IT environments and and stuff like that, and the reactions were wildly different in all the different places. Um, the 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 working community was pretty strongly pro because that meant that that like they could actually safely invest in these computers that they clearly liked if they were going to Macworld. The people who were the true believers thought it was bad news, as I recall. Right. Yeah, that that's kind of the. The faithful, you might say, are, are who I was talking about there. But um, yeah, but, but anyway, like, anyway. but like those faithful, those faithful, like they all like when the when they didn't like when the candy colored IMAX came out, they didn't they didn't like any of the they they, they were upset by the entire thing. They they were carrying Newtons around still, probably. Sure. Yeah. And anyway, like you know, Steve Jobs' second tenure at Apple is very well documented. We don't need to get into that. But like, I, I've, I'm endlessly fascinated by like I think we've talked about it recently. Like the Copland project at Apple was their first attempt to replace the Macintosh system software since the beginning of the Mac. You know, they yeah. got up to they got up to System Seven and it was all the same operating system. And then Copland was the like absolutely tr- like disastrous it attempt never released, to. Did no, it? it never came out. It never yeah. came out. Like if you go back and read about like the demo events they were having people out to for that thing, like it literally couldn't just sit at a desktop without crashing. Like yeah. Was, and system eight and system nine, while they were functional and shipped on a whole bunch of machines, were not were not good OSs. And like like it, they, it, system eight, they literally took what was going to be the last major feature release for system seven and like gussied it up with slightly new UI and stuff and renamed it to system eight. Like that's how dire things were. Well, yeah. And, and it's important to note at this time, Microsoft was really ticking over and like windows 95, 98 were both good releases. Um, and at the same time, NT4, well, 
but at the same time, NT4 was really, really exciting because it was like doing symmetrical multiprocessing. It was yeah, like there was all sorts of stuff that was happening in, in, in NT. Uh, like, like I mean, we'll get to this in a minute. Well, actually, we can talk about it now if we want. But like they released, Microsoft released DirectX 5, including betas for DirectX 5, which gave low level like metal access to hardware um, on NT4. Like you oh, could get is, a beta is, for DirectX 5 on is, NT4. Is 5 the first one that ran on uh, There were bits of DirectX 3 that ran before, okay. but like That's, the 3D yes. acceleration stuff never worked before. Oh God, you're taking me back now. Yes, I remember, like, I, rem- I think this is definitely around the time that I had my dalliance with NT4. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to run the, the powerful next generation future windows. Uh-huh. Uh, but yes, I remember like trying to install, like, I think there was no Direct 3D. There was 3? no Direct 3D 3. Like, yeah, NT4. You, when you were running DirectX 3 on NT, it was like, I think you got sound and maybe input. networking and input, as I recall. But no 3D acceleration. So, no, you couldn't play Direct 3D games on NT, but you could play OpenGL. Right. So, you could play OpenGL and Glide. Um, which at the time was kind of all that mattered. I mean, they were like, yeah, you're playing Quake mostly. Right. Not a lot of Direct 3D games. I mean, there were, that the was starting to happen. But um, well, anyway, wait. just real quick, just to close the loop on the Apple stuff, like that, you know. Jobs came back because Apple bought Next because the reason they bought Next was to get Next Step, the operating system. Yeah. But they were, they basically, they basically hit a wall where they were like, we, we cannot, we don't have it in ourselves to architect our next generation operating system. We need to just go buy one because we're going to go out of business. Well, making uh, OSs was hard. Yeah. And and they shopped, by all reports, they shopped around Next and uh, B also, BOS, John luc essays. Other that's, Mac spinoff operating system. That's, that's the Gil Emilio was running Apple at the time. Uh-huh. I, th- I think they I think they looked at some others as well. But you're right. Like B and Next were the two like major candidates to become the next Mac OS. But both both former high profile Apple employees who'd gone yep. off to do other things. And yeah, dude, how f- how incredibly different different would the history of computing be if they had bought B instead of Next? Yeah, uh, who who knows what would have ended up happening? Cause next wasn't in super fine, super good financial shape. Oh, like the, the market for that kind of computer was evaporating under the, the growth of like the, the PC market at that point. So commodity hard. Yeah. Like next, yeah. next for people who don't know, like those were like academic and research workstations. They were like what? 50, 60,000. No, 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 that's not right. No, that's SGI. I'm, no, I'm they thinking were about still SGI. expensive though. I think they were, I think they were in the like six to $10,000 range for, for next boxes or something like that. The, the, they were they were wildly overpriced and they were being outperformed by the Intel hardware, Intel and AMD hardware by by uh, like really, really quickly. Right. Right. But they had a really robust, like well-designed Unix based operating system, mm-hmm. which became Mac OS 10 anyway. Turned out to be important. Um, This was this is this is right up there with Dolly in my memory of like big media sensations. This was the year that uh, Gary Kasparov competed against IBM's deep blue supercomputer in chess. It was the second and, time, right? Uh, was it? I think they had, I thought they had another game before that, but, but it, this was the computer beat him. Yes. This was the six game series where, yes, he lost, uh, but like it, it went to a tiebreaker, like they, or a final game, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. It was their uh, second six game showdown. Okay. okay. Um, but but the computer won in the 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 final game in like in like an hour or something. Yes, it was. Uh, I, I want somebody to make a movie about this, but I I don't know how you make the computer the antagonist. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I I had glossed over that. This is this is this is the year that it beat him. Yeah, previously it, it I think he brought fought to a draw. Maybe I can't remember. 
Um, I think he won. Yes. No, he, he beat it four to two the first time. Okay. In 96. Um, the thing I was interested in here was that actually it was like, I stopped and was like, wait a minute, what was this thing made out of? Like, what did it run? Uh, and I went and looked, so they described it as a supercomputer at the time. Yeah. Uh, but it was mostly like massively parallelized. Like it had, so it had 30 power PC CPUs in it. Well, that makes sense given but IBM. It, yeah. But it also had, it also had 480 custom microprocessors, which this article describes as chess chips. Like they were quite literally. So those, um, I've got a quote here from the museum where deep, deep blue is shown off. Uh, let's see. The chips contained 1.5 million transistors and ran at 24 megahertz. Well, I mean, if you think about the time, like uh, Pentium 2 was running at 233 megahertz. So that's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's not. But still, well, but yeah. so the, this this museum display actually comments on that. Let's see this. The chip contained only one quarter of the number of transistors of a Pentium 2. But it was quite literally designed just to accelerate the algorithms, the, the, the kind the of need for search. chess. Search yeah. algorithms they were using to play chess with. So this is like literally the world's first hardware chess accelerator. Wow. Which, you know, maybe three effects should have gotten into the chess acceleration markets. Hmm. I, mean, I, I don't still, know. Maybe. Might, still, they were too busy making graphics cards and physics cards when they could have been making chess cards. Um, yeah, I, I, it's funny that that stuff didn't land for me. But also I was I did. I don't know that I had a TV connected to TV. Like at that point, I had probably just a TV with a Genesis and a SNES hooked up to it. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't remember. VCR maybe. Yeah, I didn't pay a ton of, of attention to it either um, at the time. But another interesting fact here is that uh, Kasparov wanted to study other games that the computer had played prior. And IBM okay. said no. Oh, wow. Really? So, so he actually just went and got a bunch of off the shelf commercial PC chess games and started playing those. To try to Battle like chess and chess master 3000. And I'm really curious which ones he was playing, but yeah, he just went and played like straight up chess games wow. to try to understand how chess algorithms worked because they wouldn't let him see uh, deep blues history. That's really interesting. Cause like yeah. normally in chess, the chess world, all past games are public, public knowledge. Like you can huh. go back and watch everybody like that. That's all recorded. You can go back and watch Gary Kasparov's games against everybody he ever played in a tournament. That seems like maybe questionable. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you got to give the computer some sort of edge. Fair. Um, let's see. Not a ton going on in space and astrophysics in 97. Well, was a like Mar there was a Mars window there, right? Um, yes. The Mars, the Mars Pathfinder mission. Yeah. That's the one with the little tiny itsy bitsy rover, which was the first rover, I believe. First wheeled the, rover. The, the Sojourner. Sojourner to, to tread another planet. And it was kind of an early internet phenomenon, as I recall. I, I like, it? yeah, like, like the quake, the quake news sites would post new pictures from, from the Rover. Uh, the Rover was a little solar powered, uh, six wheeled baby Rover. Uh, so the Pathfinder was the one that landed in the bag, I believe. Right. Uh, it was a bouncing beach ball and it had to land wheels. It had to land flat side down. Yes. Right. Um, yes. or else so path, the whole Pathfinder, thing, Pathfinder was the overall mission and lander, I believe. Yeah. And Sojourner was just the Rover. Yeah. And so it opened up, it opened up the, the side panels and then the Rover rolled off after a few days. Um, and, uh, we got a lot of pictures. I like, I remember seeing pictures constantly from that. It was, I'm, it was cool. I'm surprised. I don't remember that being more of a sensation because 
you're right. It was the first rover to ever drive on another body in the solar system. Well, it, I also believe that that was the first time I ever went to a NASA or one of the first times I ever went to a NASA website, like the NASA website, like they, they posted the pictures from the rover and you could see them before they were on the news. Um, if you, if you just went to the FTP site and they had to set up a whole bunch of mirrors cause everybody was hitting it all, all the time. And we all had terrible connections. So like each, each of these pictures would take, you know, 10 minutes to download. And if they timed out, you'd have to download it again. It was, it was a, it was a weird time. Uh, it was also the year that they launched the Cassini probe to Saturn, uh, which was a uh, it was the, uh, the kind of sister mission to Galileo, which was the one that went to Jupiter. Right. Uh, but it launched from Cape Canaveral and did uh, a couple of gravity assists around Venus and then back to Earth and then Jupiter on the way out to Saturn. Um, but the the thing that I remember most about that was I was supposed to uh, we were supposed to go down for the launch to watch the launch and then they kind of had to shut down guest access or whatever to the launch because of um, people protesting the RTGs on the, on the, on the probe. Uh, it was a nuclear powered probe. It had, I think 35 pounds or kilograms. kilograms. Uh, I think. So it, yeah. It was like 70 something pounds of plutonium. Yeah. 33 kilograms of nuclear fuel, which would be like 70 something pounds. Um, and uh, people were upset, but Saturn was far enough away that solar panels of the time wouldn't work. Right. Uh, where wouldn't provide enough power for the, for the length of time. And, uh, as a result, they used a little radioactive isotope decay. Uh, it didn't, it didn't, I feel like there, there were, <laughs> so it, I, I believe my understanding was that the two complaints about the anti-nuclear activists at the time were that if it exploded at launch, it would irradiate a large portion of, of central Florida, which, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <Oof>. Wow. <laughs> Judgy. Uh, or also on the earth assist loop, if something happened and it crashed back into the planet, it could, it could, uh, irradiate the entire planet. And, and then NASA did the math on like what that would mean, which I'm sure was their, their version of the math was rosy, but they were like, at most it would cause like 5,000 early deaths or something like that, uh, due to cancer, uh, which it was like kind of, kind of on one hand, yeah, you know, nuclear radiate the entire planet, kill 5,000 people. That's not too bad. On the other hand, uh, I mean, 5,000 killing 5,000 people always is bad. It's always mm -hmm. to be avoided. Yes. So yes, luckily, uh, luckily the, uh, Cassini did not crash on the gravity assist, uh, that those are pretty well established, uh, uh, processes. And we got a lot of really good, um, uh, good, good, good pictures and, and, and science out of that. And we sent the, we sent a probe to Titan. I think we dropped something. I can't remember which, which of Saturn's moons, the Huygens probe. I don't know how you say that actually. Huygens, I believe. Huygens. Um, realizing that this is a word I've only ever seen spelled and never yes. heard said, I believe that's right. It landed on Titan. Yeah. Okay. It's a little itsy bitsy thing. Hang on, this can't have been the first <clears throat> nuclear powered pro. I thought Voyager. Was... No, no, we sent a bunch of nuclear powered probes. Yeah, like why, why, why now? Was it was it the quantity of fuel? Or? It was. It was because it was a lot of fuel, um, and people also. Uh, it, it, I don't believe that Voyagers either of the Voyagers did Earth re um, or Earth gravity slingshots. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So just just increased kind of it was risk, a risk surface risk. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. Also, it was convenient. Like it was like 
yeah, who knows what people decide to protest, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Um, got a little games section here. As you Ooh. mentioned, DirectX 5 came out in 97, which was like, in my mind, that was the first like kind of complete DirectX, right? It's the like first it the, one that felt r- real. Yeah. Um, it's the first one that like was was a cohesive thing that worked better than the the manufacturer specific APIs right. pretty universally. Right. Like that was that was the point I remember thinking like, oh, I guess this DirectX thing is actually the thing like that's going to be what underpins all of this going forward and not just like a failed experiment. Yeah. I mean, direct uh, 3d DirectX three introduced direct 3d, but direct 3d at that time was a little janky and you were usually better off running the manufacturer specific versions. If there happened to be one direct X five is when we stopped seeing the manufacturer specific versions. And, and we started seeing games like Jedi Knight, you dark forces Two ship as fully 3d direct yes. 3d accelerated games. Yeah. When you, when you mentioned earlier that there were not a lot of direct 3d games at the time, Jedi Knight is the, first not the first but it's one of the first major ones that i remember it was the first of the like it was the first of the ones that were actually also good games i right. would say like a lot of the direct 3d games you were getting at that time were like packed in with your 3d accelerator yeah Hyperblade. right like revolt revolt was, revolt. Revolt was okay it was like it was oh, like no, a, it's a bedroom it's, racing game it's a good like game RC actually no game. it's it's like a totally good game yeah I, yeah I don't mean to malign it in any way but it was not super high profile a lot of mech warrior 2 ports I mean, this was, you know, this was, as, as we've mentioned, this was right in the middle of like John Carmack's soapboxing about how terrible Direct3D was all the time. So still, yeah, still a lot of the big game development was happening with OpenGL. Yeah. Or, or OpenGL specifically tuned to work with Glide. Oh yeah. Glide, like the Glide, Glide wrapper. GL. Yeah. The wrapper, wrapper. Good old Glide wrapper. Um, but it was kind of a, like, it was weird because it was also, I mean, the N64 came out in 96 technically, but I did. I don't think I knew anybody who had one until 97. You, you reminded me of this cause you mentioned that for this. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? It came out in 96. I got one on launch day. Like that. No, but then now you're making me think I've forgotten that. Like, were they actually really hard to get for a while? I think I you might be I, right. I remember like I, the first time I heard about them being available in stores where you could get one, if you hadn't like pre-ordered or put money down or something was that Walmart and target started having them just after Christmas. I think like, you're actually right. Um, cause I got mine in January and I, th- it, like I ended up driving to four different stores to find copies of, did it come with Mario 64 or did you no. have to pay for Mario 64? Um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to think it was not packed in, but something happened where they like, I'd have to go pull this up. I want to say they like lowered the price of the console right before launch. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, something, something strange happened with the pricing right around launch. I, I feel like when I bought it, when I bought the console, I got the only game that they had that I was interested in was wave race. And then I had to drive wow. another 40 miles to get super Mario 64. Like, look, I, I mean, think. Wait, Oh, oh, you said the only game they had that you were interested in at the store. Like there weren't, okay. there weren't, there were not a large selection of games available at launch for the N64. I was, I was going to say wave race is a fine game, but maybe not the only game to get for it. Um, I want to, man, I don't know if I can find something as obscure as a price drop right before launch of the Nintendo 64, but I am positive that happened. It wouldn't, it may be that they unpacked the game and did the price drop. Oh gosh, no, I found it right here on Wikipedia. Yeah. Oh. Originally intended to be priced at 250, the console was ultimately launched at 199.99. And did it, did it to, come with Mario 64? No, it did not. Yeah. To compete so yeah, you still had to uh but to compete with the sad <laughs> 
phrasing here is to compete with the Sony and Sega offerings. I don't think that the Saturn was in a very competitive position at that point. But anyway, um, rough here for Saturn. But I I do remember like I desperately I needed a Nintendo 64 more than anything on on the planet. Like I, I, I did so much, so many odd jobs that summer to make enough money to buy one. It's SGI and then hardware in there. I mean, I just, I, you know, that was like some of the earliest internet videos I ever downloaded were like Mario 64 import clips from IGN, like little postage stamp quick time videos. But anyway, I remember like just saving relentlessly. And then like at the last second, they dropped the price and I was like, oh man, now I can definitely afford it. Now you can get wave race. How often does that happen? The cartridges were expensive too. Yes. The cartridges were like 70 bucks as I recall. Well, it varied by size, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I found a I found an article from I don't know who originally wrote this from 1997 about stock shortages. Yes, that the N64 yeah. was very difficult to get for a while. Yeah, I think I think I was able to get a second controller and Wave Race when I found mine, and then the next day I would manage to get a copy of Mario 64. Um, other notable releases in '97: Final Fantasy VII. Oh yeah, the best Final Fantasy. Uh huh. Diablo. Uh, I mean, yeah, I never played. I, I bought Diablo and returned Diablo because I didn't understand what you're supposed to do. Um, wow, really? Yeah. Interesting. Embarrassing. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the history of Diablo, I think, is pretty well documented these days. But like it started as a turn based game, mm-hmm. like it started as an XCOM ish sort of thing. And they only made it real time, like late in development when they realized like, oh, this is fun. So, yes, it was like it was like kind of a new type of game at that time. The thing that was interesting, too, about it was was dynamic. Right. The dungeons were dynamically generated off of tiles, which was which was novel. Right. Um, uh, Jedi Knight, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quake 2. Quake 2 was my probably the release I was most hyped for and then simultaneously disappointed by. I can agree with that. Sure. Yes. I was also desperate to get my hands on Quake 2. And yes, the multiplayer was 10 hertz continues to suck. Mm. A bit of a step down. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. I did had its pot. Look, the railgun is a pretty good idea. Like there were plenty of good, plenty of good ideas in Quake 2. Yeah. I just didn't did railgun was fully realized in Quake 3. Yes. Uh, yes. Quake 3. Some might say Quake 3 is the game fixed Quake 2's problems. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Goldeneye, like, you know, first probably really major console shooter, if not first one ever. Goldeneye was the first game I played with two stick controls. Oh, yeah. Right. That madness. Because you could grab both center prongs, two center prongs, and you could two stick it. Yeah. Which Here's basically the, made you unstoppable compared to people who were only using a, one stick and a D-pad. Oh, sure. And of course, the big what if for me on this list is Ultima Online. The what if being what if Ultima Online had been the thing. Did you not play Ultima Online? No, I did not at the time. But like, what if what if it had been the thing that caught on and like all games, all online games were made in its image? After I, mean, they I guess they were well, no, but they they sh- they sanded all the rough edges off, is what I mean. Like that's like Ultima oh. Online, in the sense that Ultima Online was the first big multiplayer anything goes game. I guess that never was going to survive because too many people would have had too bad a time in in a game with literally no rules where you can do anything to anybody. Yeah, my so my Ultima Online experience was that I uh, was with a friend. We went to EB or, or or Babbage's or wherever you bought games. Then I bought a copy of the game. We went to the food court in the mall. We grabbed some food, and um, we were reading the manual for Ultima Online. We went back to my house. We fired up the ISDN. the The internet, the guide in the in the manual had said, "Hey, if you want to fight." then you should start with blacksmithing and mining because you need the ore in order to make weapons and yada, yada. 
and I went to the starting city where I, where I, where the game sent me, I went to the mine. I mined for about an hour until I was so much shit that I couldn't carry it. I carried it back to town where the forge was. And on the way between the mine and town, you moved out of the no PVP zone. And I was ganked in the five pixel area. <laughs> and I was like, fuck this. And I took the game back to EB. And I was like, I'm never playing this shit again. Wow. I yeah. didn't realize there was a no PVP zone. And that guy was like, again, I've never played it. My, my understanding or my impression was always that there were just literally no safeguards of any kind. So in the cities, if somebody, if you attack someone unprovoked, the city guards would kill you. Okay. And the city guards were like high level NPCs. So, okay. So, and they were fast. So it's not like you could tag somebody, kill them, grab their shit and run. You just basically would tag them and then immediately get murked. But the problem was, as I recall, when you died, you dropped everything on the ground and whoever was there just hoovered it up. And then right. you were just like out your two hours of work. And I was like, this is a terrible game. That's God, that's so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could totally understand why I probably also would not have wanted anything to do with it. That's so amazing. Well, and so and then the really unfortunate thing is I recall is I wasn't able to return it because it had code and you had to activate an account. So like at that point I was used to like, if you, but like, for example, when I purchased hell, a cyberpunk thriller featuring Dennis, uh, 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 uh Dennis, um, Hopper. Yes. I was like, this game is terrible. And I took it back to the store and I, they gave me my 50 bucks back and I bought another game. You couldn't do that without Ultima Online. It was a very, it was a big disappointment. Yeah. So I ended up playing a little bit more, but, but never, I never got good at the Ultima Online. I don't understand what Ultima Online is at this point. I'm on UO.com. It still exists. And it seems like quite active. There is a post from July 12th. If uh, only you had a video game website where you play video games and could yeah, get into know, right? into a 20 year old MMO. There's seriously a, a blog post from July 12th bylined the, by the UO dev team. Like apparently this, and there's an EA logo still at the bottom of this website. Like is, is UO just still going? It's still going. Yeah. How? The interesting thing is a lot of the early designers on UO were hired straight out of like the mud and moo worlds from the early nineties. And then the, uh, most of them went on to do other things like Raph Coster was early on UO and ended up making star Wars galaxies and right. working on EverQuest and mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff for Sony online. And yeah, did, did, did yeah. Brad McQuaid have, he's the main EverQuest name that you I remember. Did he have I anything to do with Ultima online? I don't know if he was at Ultima online. I think he was a mud. I think he had a mud at that point. Okay. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like that's a, a super interesting, um, let's see. Yeah, you're right. He was working on EverQuest while, Ultima while this Online was yeah, was in the um, process of coming out. But yeah, like that, that's a really interesting through line to me from like, from mud to UO to EverQuest to wow. Right. Like it took all these steps to get to the one that really blew up and became like the phenomenon. And that was the, like, I mean, you know, people, people make all kinds of derisive jokes about you know theme park content and care bear or whatever about wow but like that was the one with all the rough edges kind of well, smoothed down yeah i mean and but but there is like uo and everquest especially like uo was a graphical interface on top of like a lot of mud mechanism mud mechanics that then also had other mechanics that made sense in a graphical game layered on top. Same thing for EverQuest, like EverQuest, there was, there was like positioning and stuff like that in that game because it was a 3d world and you had to like, you know, rogues had to attack from the back to get their bonuses and stuff like that. But, but, um, for all intents and purposes, like you, you could have played a text only version of EverQuest that wasn't substantially different than the, than the, the graphical version. Right. 
It's a weird time for games. Yeah. Um, got a short list of domains that were registered in 1997 that you may have heard of. Oh, these are my favorite. I love, I love a good domain registration. Oh yes. Google.com. Was formerly, registered. So yeah, <laughs> formerly this was, this was where we became aware that the original name for Google, the search engine was Backrub. You think that's because the algorithm benefited like rewarded links. So like you give me a back rub, I'll give you a back oh, rub. Interesting. I don't know. Linking I mean, that back was, was the benefit. Like that was Google's big innovation when it launched, right? Like other search engines weren't really doing like algorithmic sorting of results, right? Well, no, no, no. There oh. was all sorts of algorithmic sorting of results. The big, the or, big, or, the big thing was that they valued links based on the number of links coming into your site. So okay. like if you were a site like Slashdot, where you had a bunch of bunch of other sites that linked to you, a link out from Slashdot was more valuable than a link out from chudhaven.com right. or some, you know, some site that like eight people linked to. I guess, I guess what I mean is like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, like intentional or intelligent sorting of results. Like, right. They had, they have like an actual methodology that was like serving a specific purpose yeah. I mean, I don't, I think everybody else did too. The thing, the yeah. thing that, the thing that everybody else did before though, was just waiting the number of links into a site. Okay. So like, like Lycos or web crawler or whatever would, would, I'm sure there was some sort of proprietary secret sauce, but the, the main gist was, <clears throat> Hey, this site is very popular. Therefore we'll put it above the site that is slightly less popular in the, in the rankings. Right. I just, I, I've distinctly remember like pre Google is like, ah, whatever. Like I used Alta Vista for a while, probably, probably used Lycos here. And you know what I mean? Like you weren't that attached to a search engine. Yeah. There was a, there was a search engine that literally popped up four frames with four different search engine results in it for right. everything that you searched. Like right. it was, Oh, that's it, right. I, I forget what that was called. Metacrawler yeah. or something. I think oh, was I that Metacrawler. I, I definitely remember the name Metacrawler. Um, anyway, yeah, like once I just, I distinctly remember like once Google came along and people started talking about it, it was like, oh, well, this is the search engine to use but from I mean, now on. So they registered the, the name and the domain and probably incorporated the company and all that, but we didn't see Google for another two to three years. Oh at yeah, this yeah, point. yeah. I was yeah. in, I was in college like 99, 2000 before I remember <laughs> seeing it at all. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely not at this time. Uh, Netflix, what, what other famous domains you got, Brad? Netflix.com, Facebook.com. I think we talked about this earlier. I, I think there's a pretty good chance the people who run those companies now were not the ones registering those at the time. Oh, no, no. Netflix was incorporated in 1997 as a DVD, as a mail order DVD rental service. Wow. Yeah. So that's wild because our next topic is the DVDs didn't even launch until 1997. So yeah. they were they were pretty ahead of the game there. Well, they looked, I think they looked at the cost of mailing a disc because disc mailers had a different rate on the USPS. And they were like, hey, this is a, here's a business. Um, uh, uh, Facebook, I'm sure was not, uh, Mark Zuckerberg would have been like two at that point. <laughs> sure. Um, but, but, uh, and we all know how Facebook was, uh, made in that documentary, the social network, mm -hmm. but, um, Craigslist, I think was actually Craigslist. Craigslist would, was in 1999, so. like popped up in the late nineties. Yeah. Um, I, I got to reading about the history of Craigslist a while back, not recently enough to remember a lot of the details, but I was really fascinated by the way he's run that thing. He's, it, it's, it is it's a like, fascinating company. It's like, um, I mean, he, you know, he, he makes an extremely healthy living off of it, but he's like, yeah. he's resisted like most attempts to monetize it in really deep shitty ways. Yeah. He, he, he viewed it as a, like, it's, it's funny. Cause like on one hand, good intentions and, and well-meant on the other hand, he literally decimated the entire newspaper business in the Western world. Mm, yeah. So yeah. like, you know, good, good with the bad, I guess yeah, that's there. fair. That's fair. Yeah. But it is, it is kind of a public service, right? Like. 
Yeah. For the end user, the thing is extremely valuable. I, I mean, I th- look, we aren't going to be able, I, I don't think any of us are in a position to say what the, whether net positive or net negative at this point. Um, the, the thing I will say is that, yeah, it's incredibly useful to have a shared digital marketplace for all sorts of different things. And, yep. and Craigslist, like everybody else that's been around for 20 plus years has made some mistakes along the way, but overall, uh, uh, has been good for people, I think. Uh, as mentioned, the DVD format launched in March 1997, the same day as the Academy Awards. In the U.S. or everywhere? Oh, U.S. So I guess we were like the last region to get DVD, actually. It came out in Japan in November of 96. Hmm. The rest of Asia got it in, I think, January. Uh, even like New Zealand and Australia, which, how many regions? There were five DVD regions, Five right? DVD regions, yeah. I wonder, was Australia and New Zealand a region? Oceania, I believe, is what that one was. Yes. So there was Asia, Europe, North America, South America, Africa. Oh, South interesting. America and Africa were one, I think, right? Oh, that was a huge region, actually. So yeah, region one, U.S., Canada, and Bermuda, and other U.S. territories. Regions, oh, I knew, I'm, I'm sure I knew this at the time. I had forgotten that region two included both Japan and Europe. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, region two was Japan, Europe, South Africa, Egypt, and the Middle East. Three was Southeast Asia. Uh, and East Asia, including Hong Kong, um, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean for Region 4. Oh, and then Africa was Region 5? Uh, 5 was Eastern Europe, Baltic States, Russia, Central and South Asia, Indian Subcontinent, Africa, North Korea, and Mongolia. Yeah, suck it, North Korea. Uh, and then this is on an Amazon help page. Wow. Uh, this is listing China as a region six. I don't know if that came later. I don't remember there being a region six at the time. We might not have ever seen region six stuff. All, all so, um, I didn't, I don't think I saw the, the first place, the first way to get a DVD player that was reasonable for, for my income bracket and the amount of money I was willing to spend was to buy a creative kit for 200 bucks that had an MPEG two decoder card and a DVD ROM drive that oh. went into the, into the computer. Yeah. And then I ran a really long ass analog cable from the bedroom where the computer was nice. into the living room where the computer was, where the TV was. Well, and you can, you can anamorphic squeeze those, uh, oh, yeah. those, those, uh, that big, that big, uh, Panasonic TV I had. Oh, you can't beat the anamor- the anamorphic squeeze. Oh yeah. All those extra pixels. No black pixel. No, don't waste any pixels on black. No bars. I, it was much later before I had a TV that could do that. Like probably my last CRT, my, my Sony Vega that I got. I had to do it manually. You had to, you had to manually squinch the pixels down until it looked like it was the right height yeah, uh, with the, the, with the, with the knobs. You had to do the anamorphic squinch. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was like, it was a big deal. I think I bought that, that creative thing because at the time the DVD publishers were doing like uh, send us a your receipt for buying a DVD player and we'll send you five or seven free movies or something. And it was like twister and lost in space and, mm-hmm. and a bunch of not great movies. Probably it sure was. I remember um, the, the matrix was the first like big DVD release that like was yeah. like, Oh my God, you have to see this. You have to find somebody with a DVD player and go see this. Well, when you walked around in, it's, it's, the matrix is a whole different, whole interesting thing. Cause like it was a, such a slow burn for a movie. Like I had a professor that I worked for tell me about it. And he's like, Hey, you should go see this. You'll like this. And I was like, okay. And when it's on, I was like, Oh man, this is a good movie. Um, when, by the time I went to Comdex in 2000, uh, in which would have been fall of 2000, 
the DVD had been out for a while and walking around the floor of a computer trade show was basically like you could watch the entirety of the matrix in the time it would take you to walk down an aisle in the hallway. Everybody was using the matrix. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, DVDs were weird. Yeah. I was looking again at this region list. I think the only reason I'm even really acquainted with DVD regions was from the like utility that would let you change the region code on your DVD ROM. Yeah. But it was like limited, right? You I don't do know if five, that was a, as I recall. I don't, I don't know if that was a per manufacturer thing or if that was like a DVD <clears throat> consortium standard a DVD stipulation. Consortium consortium stipulation, as I recall. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I figured. You could only change it like five times, right? Yep, five times. The the other interesting thing is there was a lot of resistance from the, even the studios that had signed on to make DVDs. Like there was a lot of um like there was a, there was a competing format called DivX that was mm-hmm. a rental only format, basically that you, the, like the discs were disposable that people didn't like for a multitude of reasons. Mm. Um, I don't believe that landed in 97. That was a little bit later, but, yeah. but, um, but the, the, like early on, a lot of studios didn't do new transfers. So you'd have like a VHS quality transfer onto a DVD. A lot That's of studios right. wouldn't do anamorphic discs. So you'd have like 480 lines, you know, your DVD was a 480 line vertical, ver- vertical lines of a video. And if you had a 16 by nine movie, non anamorphic, it was like a, a basically VHS quality transfer at that point. Cause of the, you're getting the same number of lines you got on VHS which was like 240 or something. Um, and, and then also a lot of studios didn't do extras. Extras were really important. And there were sites like the digital bits and, and, uh, a bunch of DVD review and stuff like that, that would do reviews of the discs, not of the movies, but of like the quality of the release and, and like whether the commentaries were any good and whether who was on the commentaries. And like, there were, there was a whole like hierarchy of, okay, a commentary with like a director and a couple of stars or a cinematographer and a director talking about the movie was definitely better than a commentary that was like five different people who watched the movie by themselves. And that like some editor just cut in the different bits from the different commentary tracks into one long commentary track. Um, uh, like some people would do like journalist commentaries. So like you'd get a critic that would like, like, you know, that would talk about Gene Siskel would talk about one of his favorite movies on a commentary track, which feels weird to me. I like, it was a really, people just didn't know what to do with this at all. It was, it was a really fun time. I had completely forgotten about that early DVD phase where, yeah, like you kind of had to do some research to see if the movie you were buying was actually worth buying or not, because they had just like, like you said, just like shit, whatever transfer they already had onto a disc with nothing. And it's like, Oh, and then that led to the situation later where once DVD blew up, Everybody yeah. wanted to re-release their movies in like nicer transfers with more features. And then you had to go like, okay, which one am I buying here? Am I getting the crappy early release or is this the nice deluxe later one? Like that was, yeah. Well, and sometimes, sometimes they like Jurassic park famously released like five different boxes in the same day. And like there was a Dolby digital box and there was a, a DTS box the DTS box, because the DTS audio took up more data, had lower, fewer special features, but it had the good audio mix because it had the DTS mix. So if you wanted the special features and the good audio, you had to buy two different discs. Hmm. It was, it was this, a lot. This was pre multi-disc releases, I assume. Uh, no, they, they, these were still multi-disc releases, but, huh. um, but like, so they couldn't put five, they, like the, the DTS version had multiple audio commentaries and there wasn't enough room on the main disc 
for multiple audio commentaries and the DTS track was the, yeah. was the big thing. I, I God, I miss the, the heyday of DVD special features and extras and behind the scenes. Oh yeah. It reached its apex Lord of the Rings, like especially on the extended edition DVDs, like easily, easily the best behind the scenes and special features that have ever been produced for any film ever. Look, I'm going to make a strong argument for the criterion, uh, edition of Armageddon where Ben Affleck is so hammered doing the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the commentary. He just tells you what it was like working with Michael Bay. Oh yeah. It's no, a very I, good commentary. I, I, I want to say which, which Schwarzenegger movie is it where he also got really drunk for the commentary? I think it might be Conan. There was a lot of them. Uh, yes. uh racer. He, he just, they, there's one where he just like narrates what's happening on this. This is when I shoot the guy in the oh. face. Ridley Scott loves to do that too. Like I've, if you've watched like the Ridley Scott commentaries for like Prometheus and the alien covenant and stuff like half of it is him literally just describing what's happening on screen. I I'm going to say like, I learned so much about how people talk about movies and how, what people think about when they're making movies and you know what their intent, like the neat thing about it was it was a place to get direct kind of from the horse's mouth. Sometimes, sometimes they were, you know, the little hagiographied um, stories about what they were trying to do when they were making a movie and like that, that doesn't exist in the streaming world as much anymore. Like you don't yeah. see a lot of director commentaries and stuff like that. Um, so it's a little bit of a bummer. Ryan Johnson famously releases commentaries as podcasts. So you can take them, put them on your phone and listen to them while you're watching the that's, movie in the theater. That's nice. That's something which I like. Yeah. My, my, my understanding is, yeah, they just, nobody feels like they can justify the expense anymore. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, given the, the expense of making a two hour audio production is like, basically the people's time plus a, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, a couple hours of editing. I'm talking it's more like, I'm talking more like having a, having a crew on set, like actually shooting as productions happening and stuff like that. Like well, the, the big deluxe, like again, if, if you have never seen the Lord of the Rings stuff, it's like, it's like, like 20, seven discs. It's like, movie, it's, right? it's like 20 hours per film of stuff. Yeah. Like it's insane. And it's so, it's also so interesting. And like, like the cast was clearly having such a good time. Well, and Peter Jackson cared about what he was doing too, which was, which is the, 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 like, I think now the thing that happens often is like productions will invite a YouTube channel to come, but those folks come for like a week at most probably. And they're not there for the full 40 day shoot or 80 day shoot or yeah. I mean, Lord of the Rings was those shoots were long, but anyway, over a year. Yeah. But anyway, go, go watch those features. If you haven't, they are, I've, I've watched them more times in the movies. Well, and a lot of that stuff's on YouTube now too, which yeah, is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's not surprising. Okay, last thing here. Speaking of movies, that was uh, ninety-seven. Was when the Star Wars special editions hit theaters. Oh man, I was so excited for that. As was I. I uh, well, I, I, the thing that happened though was the year before they re-released the original cuts in theater. Oh in no, 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 not those didn't yeah. hit theaters. I don't. Yeah, think. they absolutely I, did. I, I saw sure? I saw Star Wars two times during you're, this time period. To be clear, you're talking about, so I actually, it's weirdly, I just pulled this up, like the, the TV commercial that ran back then, uh-huh. the like, like see them again one last time marketing campaign. That was for the release with the like half face covers, right? The, remember that? It was, yeah. it was, it was a stormtrooper, Yoda and Vader. Each cover was like, the cover was split with like half of their face showing yeah. against black. Uh, are you sure those ended up in theaters? Yeah, they released, they released, there were two, uh, hold on. Star Wars K one Star Wars ninety six release date yeah maybe you're um, right I I did I I somehow missed that apparently but like the special editions hitting in ninety seven were like to me that was like oh my god I actually can see Star Wars in the theater finally because I wasn't alive for that the first time 
Yeah, they no, they they launched they re, mm, I can't it, this is this is from the time when the internet is not super useful to you. Yeah, no, that, that that's fair. I the 96 one I remember being a big VHS and laserdisc push. Because they were um, straight up they were straight up Disney style going to vault it. They were straight up saying and I again, I just watched that TV commercial. They were like they're like this this will be your final chance to own the original Star Wars trilogy. Which at the time, I don't think they had come out and said Hey, because we're going to change a bunch of shit and never make the originals available again. Well, they did eventually in the Blu-ray release, as I recall, but it's a bad uh, transfer. The DVD one, the, yeah, the DVD yeah. release of Star Wars That's had right. the Laserdisc transfers, but they were like they're bad, non-anamorphic, pillar boxed, and yeah, like a, it's a mess. Anyway, yeah, the the um, there was a re- there was a ni- there was an earlier release. I'm like I, I, I'm oh here we go. 1995. The original trilogy was released on uh, Laserdisc. Blah, blah 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 blah. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking mm. about. Maybe they didn't show it in theaters. Maybe I don't, I don't just, think oh, they no. did. Here we go. No, 1981. Huh. Yeah, no, that was that was very much a here's your last chance to own these movies. Man, I could have uh, sworn I saw them in theaters, but maybe not. The um, the the special editions. This it was divisive. Yeah, people extremely. were really upset. I was still upset. That's why I still cared about Star Wars. I, I was not super thrilled with most of what happened there. I mean, the big thing, like the the bit with Jabba and the farting noise when he steps over him or whatever, like who cares? The 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 fundamental the the big thing was that changing so that Greedo shot first like changes a core aspect of that character. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's and like that's it's well tread. We don't need to talk yeah. about it, but yeah. I mean, um, historically, those are interesting to look back at for me as being basically the test bed for the prequels. And like and like the prequels are the beginning of the modern era of digital filmmaking. Right. So like the. Yeah, like I think I think, that's I think fair. the special editions were basically like ILM. Starting to work out all of the techniques that they were going to need to pull off the prequels. Right. Y- yeah. Or yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, the interesting thing it it was it was funny because at that by that point we had seen a bunch of dvd releases that were like you know blade runner famously had like six cuts by this point or four cuts by this point it was before the final final cut that that uh ridley scott eventually released but like there was the studio cut with the narration and then there was the unicorn cut there's the tv cut and a bunch of different stuff the the this was the first time i remember a director saying look we're this is just the version of the movie now like we're yeah. not <laughs> if you don't like this too bad right i mean that's an extremely george lucas thing to do um but yeah it, it it's uh i yeah i don't know i i feel like it was a weird it, it, it was I, I look realistically this is a thing i cared much more about 25 years ago than i do now <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, sure. Well, especially because like there's all these other ways to get what you want now, right? Like the despecialized editions happen. The these the Project 4K scans are out there now. Yeah, I guess I guess if you wait long enough, eventually life finds a way, right? Yes, like yes, somebody's gonna figure out how to bring back the thing you miss one way or another. But well, for for me, I remember being upset about the preser- preservationist thing, right? Like because they did destructive scanning on the on the old negatives. That's so. That's the thing. I think we've talked about this before, but that's the thing I've never understood was that they their excuse for why we can never put out the originals again was that they said that they had to cut into the original negative to make the special editions. I 
I, I don't understand enough about how that works to understand what, what is correct and what isn't correct right, there. Right. The, the thing that I do know from talking to some archivists for, for different studios is that like preservation wasn't a focus for a oh, lot no, of that's films absolutely. in that time period. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and as a result, like, you know, a lot of stuff, they'll, they'll open up something that's supposed to be in a, a container. It's just not, not only is it not in good shape, it's just not there anymore. Right. Right. Like they, yeah. They lose stuff, stuff disintegrates or burns yeah. or whatever happens. I, I mean, to, to expand on what I meant though, like maybe film scanning technology was not there at the time, but like, I, I mean, I would assume it would have to be, or you couldn't be doing digital effects that like, were they not able to digitally scan the negative before they essentially ruined uh, that, it in, in a way that would have preserved it. Like that's the stuff I don't fully understand. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. It was a weird time, Brad. Yes. For a lot mid nineties. Uh-huh. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, we have reached the, I'm sure we forgot some stuff, so please let us know. Yeah. Um, but we've reached the moment at the end of the show when we thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, patrons. This is, um, not the last show of the month. We have one more, I think. So, yes, Oh, that's good. Just under um, the gun, the last day of the month. I know. I'm going to be traveling next end of next week, so we should uh, figure out when we're going to record either on this side or the other side, one or the other. Yes. If you have questions, that'll be a Q&A episode, so hit up the Question Seeking Answers channel on the Discord if you're on the Discord. Or or, or you can email them to techpod at content.town, where we right. check the questions every single month. <laughs> we do. I swear. It's just, it's just a thing we do reliably we and without ever forgetting. Yes, in real time. Yeah. Um, but thank you to all of our patrons, uh, everybody who supports us. We really appreciate it. And, and, um, we hope you, uh, you had, have a, enjoyed the episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, but before we go, uh, we would like to thank all of our patrons, but especially our executive producer tier, tier patrons, including Paddle Creek games, makers of fractured veil, Andrew Slosky, Octothorpe bunny crimes, just wedge, Jacob chapel, Joel Krauska, Twinkie is the pick and place and James Kamek. Thank you also so much. We yes. really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. I, <laughs> the phrase, the phrase Octothorpe bunny crimes, cinematic universe was uttered on the discord, <laughs> uh, recently in reference to like us and next lander and shift F one. And just like, just, all, just a lot of, a lot of the like sort of whiskey media adjacent podcasts that have siloed off in different areas. Bunny crimesing out, um, all around the world. I, I really, I really enjoyed that as an umbrella term for this, uh, loose family of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's always nice when there's a crossover episode. I, I enjoyed Abby on the next lander podcast yeah. this week. So, yeah. um, but that'll do it for us this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the show. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we also have coming up uh, a fabulous episode of the FOSPod over at FOSPod.content. That's right. Own, where we talk to the folks who make Blender, which yep. was fascinating. Yes. Excellent conversation. That'll be out later this week. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.